0: It's August 12th, 2021. This is Rook. Well, hi there, welcome to episode 135 of Rook. Hope you're keeping well wherever mm-hmm. you are tuning in from around the world. khub du Son Aziz. Hello to you from Toronto, mm-hmm. Canada. Welcome to one of our special themed episodes of Rook this month. Hi Groovish. Hi
1: Zianja.
0: Another lineup of immensely talented people on this program coming up. Yes. Not you and I, the, yeah. the guests, I mean, <laughs> Today we're focusing on the broadcasters, three remarkable humans of Iranian descent, all of them women who have made and are making a huge contribution in the realm of media and broadcasting. The anchor woman Shali Zomorodi in San Diego, the legendary journalist and radio voice Homo Sashar in Los Angeles, and the brilliant BBC World and BBC Persian presenter Pune Kwadusi in London. All coming up. We're coming to you on RookMedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms and where you can pick up a patron of our show. We are on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and CastBox. And if you'd like to see some visuals with Rook and see us on social media, switch over to YouTube or Instagram right now, at Media is the handle. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English, as well as Farsi, check out the bilingual version of our, well, our bilingual platform, which is Telegram. All right, let's get to our guests. This is a special themed episode of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is The Broadcasters. Let's get to our first guest. Imagine waking up in San Diego at 5 a.m. with your eyes barely open, turning on the TV to watch the news, only to see that charismatic anchor you've come to trust as a broadcaster and her crew dancing to Persian tunes in the studio whilst on the air. You can hardly believe your eyes, and yet your ears are hearing, Yeah. <laughs> You might start wondering if you're still dreaming, wondering where you are, and if you were suddenly transported to Iran. And suddenly she says, "Wake up! Let's roll." Thank you for adding into the weekend with me. You've probably seen it as one of the masses who've watched it on YouTube. To be sure, Shali Zomorodi is known for her cheerfulness, her her superb dance moves, and her infectious laugh. She brightens up her audience's mornings and brings a ray of sunshine to their days. But beyond that ebullient disposition. Shelly is also an award-winning journalist and anchor who has been recognized as the trusted face of Fox 5 Morning News in San Diego for more than a decade. Born and raised in California, Shelly graduated from California State University Fullerton and earned degrees in journalism and political science. She grew up as a lover of arts and entertainment, including dance, and was crowned Miss Orange County USA in 2001 before joining Fox 5 Morning News. Shally worked as a reporter, a producer, a video journalist and an anchor for numerous news programs and television stations. She has interviewed politicians from across the American spectrum, as well as many A-list celebrities and stars like Angelina Jolie and Black Eyed Peas. And throughout the years, Shally has received numerous awards, including the person to watch under 40 and the best anchor in San Diego 2019. And Shally Zomorodi joins me from southern california hello
1: baby and i'm like blushing cheek to cheek i'm gonna like copy paste this introduction and anywhere i go i'm taking you with me
0: this is your life i mean what you know you've done all that what am i supposed to do
1: Did you mention the four kids in the middle of that? Did I catch that
0: I'm getting to the four. Oh, that that might be your most impressive accomplishment (laughs) as well as all of this. I'm getting to that. But, you you know, I, I should say, I was talking to my producer, Susan, about the questions I want to ask you, and I said this is a serious journalist. I don't want to start the interview talking about her viral hit studio dancing. And Susan said, no, go for it. She loves her dancing. So let's start there. You are an award-winning journalist. When did you first decide to inject the smooth Persian moves into your broadcast?
1: Oh my goodness. I don't don't think there was ever a, a moment. I've been dancing for so long. I mean, I still remember, when I started working for ABC in southeast Texas, this is outside of Houston, where I probably was the only Iranian who lived there, 2002 maybe, that I would, on morning television, just manage to get a little bit and dance a little bit. And I would just put in just a little bit of Persian music with all the others. And and it just continued and continued. And we just kept doing it every year. And now, To turn my grumpy co-hanker, sometimes he's the sweetest guy in the world, but just to get people up and rolling at that godforsaken hour, sometimes it just takes a little bit of doing something they're not used to, and it puts everybody in a great mood. So it's become a thing in our studio. You'd be amazed how many Farsi terms they use to each other. They call (laughs) each other June. They're there all the time. They know how to say Nouruz. And they all wait for their AD every March anxiously in a line.
0: Well, I was going to say, I mean, you celebrate <laughs> you celebrate Nowruz, And you, you give out the crisp bills, the AD. Uh, you set a half-scene table. You bring cookies to the studio for Nowruz. I love it. The most interesting part for me is that I totally relate to your pride, even though, like me, you did not grow up in Iran. What what makes you feel like you want to be an ambassador of sorts for our culture?
1: When I look in the mirror every day, and I see myself a lot on TV, on social media, I I see in an Iranian. My eyes and my eyebrows and my dark hair and my features come from two incredible people who were born and raised in Iran. And I often look back and I, I wonder, and I'm, I'm sad that I don't know this part of who I am and where I'm from, is that 80% of my family still lives in Iran. We're one of the few out of our immediate family that um, did leave Iran many, many years ago to start a life here. And though there was a really big chunk of my life that I could barely even speak Farsi, even though it was the first language I learned as a child because my mom did not know Farsi when she was here, there was something always in me that, um, that reminded me that I'm an Iranian uh, at the core. This is who, where I came from. These are who my parents are. And even when I look at my children today, I see their eyebrows connecting. I see their dark features. I see uh, the face of a of small Iranian child. Where we were born and where we're being raised may change some of the factors, but at the end of the day, that's where we come from. So I think it's it's followed me wherever I've gone. Um, it's just become much more uh, dominant now, and I'm I'm very proud uh, to talk about uh, a country that I've really not been to, but I know it's where I'm from.
0: I hear you. I hear you, and I I really appreciate it, and I. Uh, not only do I hear you, I, I get it uh, uh, as someone who first grew up in the ethnic closet, not wanting people to know uh, post-revolution uh, as a little kid, you know, not a, being worried uh, because they're going to call me a terrorist, etc. Um One of the expressions I use with friends these days is I say, you can't escape your packaging. And this becomes most apparent to me when I go somewhere like um, Southeast Asia, where people are, you know, they are they don't have lots of tact. They're very honest. And so they'll say, where are you from? And I'll say, Canada, and they'll just kind of look at me and <laughs> not not to take anything away from the amazing diversity of Canada, but you know they're just like uh, I don't think so, brown boy. Where did you actually come from, you know? And uh, and I really actually appreciate that. You know, it's like okay, yeah, that's my that's who I am. So I get it, I get it. But when it comes to the dancing and the celebrating, I wonder if there was a moment. I mean, it seems like a ridiculous question in in hindsight now, but was there a moment earlier on where you thought? I'm somehow going to be taken less seriously if I do this. I have to hold it together and wear my shoulder pads and and not not do any clearing on, uh, for in case they think I'm not a serious journalist.
1: You know. Uh- As far as serious journalist goes, I am I'm a storyteller and I've been lucky and blessed enough to work on morning shows for the majority of my career. And I've always been committed to those morning shows because the formats have been positive and upbeat. And it gives me the ability to be able to report on very serious news, breaking news, but be able to pivot and shift and cook something 15 minutes later. Or be able to go on the back lot and dance and laugh and connect with people because that's really morning show is kind of what life is. It's serious. It's sad. It's happy. It's all sorts of things all bundled in one. I necessarily don't know if I would do what I do if I was working on the five, six, ten o'clock news. It's it maybe a little too serious for my personality, and uh, I don't ever sometimes i might have a a moment that i don't want people to question my journalistic integrity having said that i think that quite opposite has happened is that people have been able to identify and say whoa this is like a young mom Uh she has four kids she's tired as heck she's she gets up and smashes it every day even though whether she's doing a great job or not doing a great job this is what she looks like without makeup This is what she's doing. This is how she's failing. This is when she's crying. This is when she's sad. This is what it's like when she's dancing. And I relate to her so much. And I get it that when something comes down the news pipe and when a story comes down, that there is trust, that they can trust me, that I'm like them, that I am a mom and I am a person and I dance and I laugh and I cry and I'm not putting up this news anchor front not that that's what evening anchors do, but in some ways, I'm I'm somewhat your friend. Like I got you, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's kind of what what's happened at, at the end of the day. So I, I've had a few messages. People poke at me and just you know you're 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 supposed to be a news broadcaster. Why don't you just sit down and stop dancing? But you know what? This is life, and it's so short, and mm. I'm gonna dance my way through it because I mean I think it's clear. There is enough pain that we all have to deal with from morning to night to begin with so these little pockets of moment i'm going to clear my way
0: through it <laughs> when you talked about the person poking at you uh trolling you you suddenly adopted the sort of a texas accent you had a uh, <laughs> was, was that intentional <laughs> i I've
1: heard i heard that in texas right. I mean, oh, I've, ah. I've heard it over the years they have said it to my face they have left voice messages for me so i and I know and, and it sometimes it comes from Iranians. So I mean I could I could do an Iranian accent very well. You should have you should hear some of the things <laughs> I hear from um, Iranians as well.
0: In <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> to <but laughs> Right,
1: right, right.
0: Well, you know, despite your youth, I mean, you have become this institution in in Southern California morning programming, but you took such an interesting route getting there. So take me back. First of all, you've alluded to this a couple of times, but what was it like growing up as a kid with Iranian parents uh, in the American, uh, the the Southwest in, in the 80s and 90s?
1: It wasn't easy. It was not easy Um, and I think some might be surprised how proud I am to say I'm Iranian today Or my parents are Iranian or how much I dream to go back to See Iran and my family there if they knew what we went through growing up um, I was called an Iranian terrorist when I was a very small child The kids used to make fun of the eyebrows that now so many message and say gosh I wish I had your your thick eyebrows Mm -hmm. Uh, my dad was bullied and um, I know I am confident so much of what I do today and to be in the position that I am today and be proud ha- came from my childhood here because at that time it was very difficult and I didn't understand you're a kid you don't understand why yeah. the kids are bullying yeah. you don't understand why people are, are calling you names yeah. uh, and fast forward this many years Jan I mean I still I've still on the subject of uh, qu- comments and and racial comments. I mean, just recently, not too long ago, I had a gentleman send me a message and tell me to go home. Um, wow, and yeah. it was after I believe some of our Noroo's coverage. Mm-hmm. And it, you were like, "This f- is my-
0: to San Diego." Should I go well, home? But to, I, yeah,
1: but I am home. But okay, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I can i can now it, it hurts for a second it'll sting for a second because what makes me sad about it is that as a mother to four young children i know that at one moment i'm gonna have to send these kids into the world and they're gonna have to be able to face people like this so my whole job is to prepare them um, to not uh, lose themselves when they are confronted with people uh, like this uh, and do a, a better job than i did because i cried a lot i mean i was bullied out of several high schools yeah um but you know it is what it is right
0: It, it certainly i would imagine makes a difference uh, what community you're in and the kind of community support and diversity you might have. So so being in rural uh, Tennessee is going to be a little different from being in, in uh, Los Angeles. I'm under the impression, as I recall, having visited there and loved it a few times, uh, San Diego, there's a large Persian community.
1: Oh, it's huge. Does,
0: does that make a difference?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you can't go to the store and not hear somebody speaking Farsi in the store in Southern California. So that when you see it around, you feel okay, this is home. Okay, there's other people like me because we're all trying to identify with somebody, whether it can be a race, whether it could be a group, it's a set of friends, it's a, it's a, 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 Hobby that you like all of us are trying to find ways to be able to identify So it's much easier to do that here in Southern California when we have these massive festivals and concerts all the time and and You can't do that when I went to Southeast, Texas. I was like I could hear the birds chirping. I'm like, oh, I'm all alone out here Um, but you know that took a little bit more work and within seven months of being there I was teaching belly dancing classes and, and putting <laughs> Persian music on, and I had almost 75 students being exposed to dance and culture, which dance and music and, and food is a powerful vehicle for me to be able to give doses of our culture and our um on our traditions to people it's a very beautiful way to be able to do it without even like people realizing that you're doing it you know uh, I, have, uh, I have americans uh, non-versions all the time they'll send me a message and say shali what does their tea mean <laughs> what does june mean and, and i love that i love it that they're learning that or can you spell shalom shapat for me i like that music <laughs> all right right Perfect.
0: By the way, I love how much of an A-type you are uh, personality. It's it's not enough to go to East Texas and belly dance. You have to teach the belly dancing. <laughs> well
1: what else <laughs> am I going to do? Ladies and gentlemen, Shali Yeah. You know, let's just dance the rest of the day.
0: <laughs> uh broadcasting and broadcasters have become much more diverse in the last decade or two It wasn't always that way i mean i know this personally when i first started on tv in the early 2000s there were very few if any middle eastern guys on tv in canada when you started did you feel like you were somehow at a disadvantage because you weren't blonde because you weren't white
1: absolutely absolutely and it took me a really long time to get a job i remember i used to take my tapes to the post office and I would I would do like a little prayer of like, please let this be the one somebody please call back and I I would send tape after tape after tape after tape to station all across the country like market like cities that I didn't even know existed in the United States they were so small and nothing and then nothing and then nothing and no call back and no call back. Uh, And yeah I did think at that time maybe it's maybe it's my name maybe it's uh, the way I look because you would see the, the broadcasters and, and what the typical, you know, the hair was like and the faces were like. Um, but I, I think that that changed um, quietly and also very quickly without us having like a moment to say, uh, you know, we're, we're having a lot of moments in, yeah. in our society, yeah. in our world right now. I don't think there was a moment where all that changed for broadcasters. I just think that it just started happening. And now you blink and you open your eyes and you just have all kinds of beautiful faces all over TV, all over media. I, I love it. It's yeah, it's yeah. So it almost percent.
0: seems ridiculous to ask the question now. But for those of us who remember, I mean, I remember there being a time where I never considered changing my name, but I remember thinking, you know, with, with this name, you know, that's not going to work. So did anyone ever recommended that, that you have to change your name?
1: No, no, I was never... Nobody ever said anything to me about it. I've never really had a problem. I love my name, Shali. I love telling the story of Shalio, Zaro, where my mom is from, Rashed, And I've always found that to be um, fun, like a fun talking point. Uh, Zumarodi still to this day, people call me Shali sometimes on TV. Zumarodi, it's like good luck with that. But I stood with that. I said, you know what? You're good. You're going to say my name. I'm going <laughs> to teach you how to say Zomorodi. And now, these people, I've been on TV in San Diego so long that most people know, oh, it's Shali, it's Shali Zamarodi And they say it so well that I get like goosebumps. I'm like, yep, see, when you don't change your name and you just stand there, at some point, they'll get it. They'll get it. Just give them time.
0: By the way, Farsi, it's really good. <laughs> uh, I make fun of myself, I don't know. How did you learn to speak Farsi?
1: Uh, Gianna, I forced myself and I half blame my husband now because I I like I mentioned when my mom uh, came here, my dad married my mom in, from Iran and brought her back here. She didn't know any English. She learned English from TV. So I was a baby and all I knew was Farsi. Then I went to school and I'm like, Farsi, what? By the time I got to junior high, high school, I could barely speak. And it wasn't until I met my husband that I was kind of reintroduced to the Farsi world that I, his parents were, um, my husband came here when I believe he was six or seven. So they're much more Iranian and speaking Farsi and whatnot. And then I got a job at, you know, Voice of America that I had to speak Farsi again. And I forced myself, like, you talk to me, I didn't answer you in English, I answered you in Farsi. Right. I, I still have a year and I don't communicate in Farsi the way I do in English, um, but I can speak, I understand what you're saying. If you talk about me, I know exactly what you're saying. About <laughs> what,
0: about, what about reading and writing?
1: I don't know how to read or write. That's the Excellent. one regret. Excellent. Excellent. You can't either? <laughs>
0: I'm illiterate as well. I, I mean... <laughs> I can vary if you give me a sentence and give me about an hour in a room I can work it out <laughs> but that's the best well, that's I can good, do that's
1: good because you're like five steps ahead of me for me all the Farsi comments that come through my poor husband he does read and write Farsi I'm like constantly honey what does this say honey what is this person saying honey <laughs> so he's constantly yeah, no. like monitoring and trust watching trust me I do that Farsi. too uh,
0: yeah, okay, I'm I,
1: jealous I'm jealous
0: so, so uh, you mentioned your husband this is let me come back to what i I said i would in terms of juggling your life because you you do seem like something of a wonder woman you do a a daily major morning show that you have to wake up at 3 a.m for you're the mother of four children you still have time to do dancing with the stars you express your love of (laughs) cooking on video you do the shalzi podcast how do you do this how do you balance this this seemingly madcap life
1: i don't i i don't think i can say i balance it because there's some days that i i'm just a hot mess uh, I don't know I mean I, I have days that I'm just on the floor I have tears it becomes too much but I always shift back to I have one chance at doing this now and time is gonna time is gonna move it's gonna go. Oh. What do I want to do with this time that I have? I am often asked by people is how do you do so much? you amaze me. And There are some people who will very few but say you're just showing off and This is not normal for someone to do Uh, I hope what I share with people is never a show-off because that's not what I'm about. I'm never about to make People feel bad or they're not good enough or they can't what I hope by doing and sharing this is that you can and even when it's impossible It's still possible, and you can get up in the morning, and you can shift your energy and smile, and you can be a good mommy and still have bad days, and you can be a news broadcaster when everybody told you that you're not going to make it. I see so much bad in Gion. you could probably relate to this as being somebody who's in the journalistic world. So much bad that happen in people's lives every second of every day, and you see people's lives changing in an instant. That I feel so lucky to wake up every single day, and, ha- and I count my blessings. And even when I think it's bad, I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" Let me go to the newscast after, after like three minutes of reading the news. I'm like, "Okay, I'm good. Life's good. Hmm. Let's let's keep smashing smashing away." Yeah. So that that's kind of where how i answer people that ask me is that how do you do so much and um, a lot of social media now is even fueling me more because there have been so many people that reach out and say shali i'm a mom of two i have depression i can't get out of bed you don't know how much you motivated me to dance with my kids today Hmm. shali i have stage four cancer there's chemo being pumped into me right now and I cannot tell you what you and your family and your daughter and your dancing has done for me. You make me want to live. I don't know these people. I've never met these people. But let me tell you, I get up and I dance extra for these people and I cook more for these people and I do all of this even more. I'm normally like this. You ask yeah. everybody around me, I'm normally like this. But I do it even more now because there's such a thirst for it. And people, people are connecting with it. So if I can do it and I'm not mm-hmm. as like the there you go I'm happy to I'm happy to share this with you
0: you're so open about who you are and, and uh, I really appreciate that in this interview but you're also you've mentioned the social media a couple of times you're quite open on social media and in your podcast you talk about your husband Bruce you talk about your children um, you open up about your life and your family. Tell me about opening up yourself as much as you do on social media. That, as we know, can certainly be a mixed blessing. It's a, it's a minefield for all of us. Um, uh, tell me about making that decision.
1: <sighs> I don't even know how many years I've been on, on social media. And I don't think when I started this, I ever imagined I was going to do what I'm doing today, to be so active and so connected with so many people around the world, Uh With this, I know that when I posted news stories, the reaction from people, minimal, medium, okay, this happened in the world. When I posted me in the kitchen cooking, everybody was worried about the knife that was over my shoulder, the tomato that was on the counter behind me. And all the details and the amount of feedback that we were getting was just hands down tenfold compared to just even big news stories that were coming up during the day. So it took some time for me to say, wait a minute. So this is what people want to see? This is what they're connecting with? This is what's motivating them? This is what's bringing us together? Okay, Let's dance more. Okay, let's cook a little bit more. And in the middle of all of this, I was able to continue to share the important stories. This story is going to affect you. This story might affect your family. This is going to affect your health. Okay, but let's go back and dance a little bit more. Let's go back and cook a little bit more. Why don't you see what my face looks like at three o'clock in the morning when I don't have makeup on? Give me 30 minutes and let me show you what my face looks like when I do have makeup on. Let me show you what it's like when I'm in the car with four kids and all four of them have had a meeting and said, you know what, we're going to drive mom and dad crazy and scream at the top of our lungs right now. So these raw moments of life is what I have found is connecting me with other human beings on this planet. That Wait a minute, I'm a mom, my kids do, might do that too. And Shali, thank you for showing us what your face really looks like that you're not makeup and lashes and and you don't you don't care it's not like a front because all of us when you take off my lashes and the makeup and you take all this stuff we're all we're all the same we're all struggling with the same things in this world we all have most of us have money issues that we're dealing with emotional issues we get into arguments with our friends we don't talk to our husbands and wives every once in a while and I think we came to a point as our family, because there was a few years that my husband didn't really want to get involved in the social media world, found it very invasive. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes he still does, but he just said, you know what, let's go for it. If it's going to bring this much good to people and it's changing people's lives and it's motivating them, then let's just go for it. And we're going to have to take the bad with the good. And we deal with it sometimes daily. Um, And when it becomes too much, then I'm going to walk away. But for right now, we're dealing with it.
0: He's very patient. I've watched some of your your, your <laughs> really? podcast videos. You what else
1: you think about <laughs>
0: him. I, well, I've watched him. You know, he's sitting there he like patiently while big personality Sholly is running the show. And and you know, you bring him in every once in a while. How do you sit get closer? Say this. I mean, he's you know, I, he seems like he's amicable guy to kind of. Uh, to work with on these things. Uh, But of course, uh, (laughs) every relationship has its, uh, it takes two to tango. So I got it. It, it Um, uh, um, Do you, when you open yourself up that much um, and you've got the following that you've grown to have, you've got it, there's got to be trolls. There's got to be people that once in a while say horrible things. How do you deal with that?
1: I have not perfected it because there are times that I allow it to hurt more than others, especially when they're targeted towards my children. Um, Not because what anything that anybody has said to me, I know where I stand, who I am, what I'm about, my motivation. And I'm all about just love and acceptance and bringing people together. That's just every bone in my body is, is that. But when you target my kids, Um, when you target my family, it stings for a moment. When you target my, my business, like just who I am, I have days, Gian, that I want to hit the delete button. I I think one day if I ever leave broadcasting, there is a really good chance that without announcement, I would delete everything and live very quietly because a lot of people do have that privilege. Mm -hmm. I've, and I know this is my choice. Again, I understand all of this is my choice and I've accepted this, but I, I've explained it as if social media is me opening my front door and I'm welcoming you into my house. You know what my bedroom looks like. You know what my kitchen looks like. You know what my face looks like in the morning. You you know what my bad days are, my good days are. You see my parties, et cetera. You see it all. But what I am sad about and it hurts sometimes is I feel like sometimes when you're standing out the window, and these are what I look at social media people, they're standing at your window and they're watching you and they're looking inside your window with permission of course but then they start to pick up rocks and they're starting to like throw them at you and they're using the information that they're seeing the ones that you you quote unquote we call trolls they know more about me than some of the people who really love me i mean they can detail my everything that i do down to the nitty-gritty and they're watching me but they hate me they hate me and they want me to know that they hate me. So some days, if I'm really tired or if I'm having a bad day, it becomes harder to di- digest that just because I know that there's people like that that exist in this world, not because I, I think uh, what they're saying is true. Maybe subconsciously, it takes me a little bit back to my childhood when there was those bullies and that meanness that was there. Um, but again, I've leaned so much on so many mentors and people around me that are just so educated and so enlightened that they ground me and they help me find my balance again, that all of this comes from because of them. It's not me. I trigger something in them. My happiness and my goal getting and my wake up and let's dance and the attention that that brings triggers things in other people for the most part. And I've had to accept that. Like it, it, it just like the name of my podcast, it is what it is. This is the reality, but I have, I have the power to now not be the way that I was when I was a young girl and cry and go in the corner and lock my door, even though I do have those moments every once in a while. But now I just stand up, not in a very mean way. And I just walk away and I keep pushing forward and I seek the people that I can connect with.
0: It's empowering talking to you. I, I know I can't keep you forever. I'm just going to, uh, uh, just a couple more questions. I want to go because I want to travel back from the personal to the professional for a couple of moments. And sure. and, and ask you about being a, an anchor, being a news anchor, someone who was named best anchor in San Diego, a big market last year. What do you believe is the key to being a great broadcaster?
1: I think today the biggest key is being able to connect with people, anchoring and doing the news thing, I get tons of kids that send me message. I want to be a news broadcaster. I want to be a news broadcaster. Everybody, even when I was a kid, it was about being on on TV and being able to tell stories. Now it's can you connect with people? And when you get that connection with people, then you can talk about the stories that um, and things that are happening that it affects in lives and having those conversations so that they can make changes in their lives. They can protect their their families. And that's what it's all about for me today. I love that I have the ability to get information faster than anybody. And when I see something go down or some breaking news comes through, or I'm hearing something about coronavirus that is not a conspiracy theory, that I can pass that information, and, and now I call these people my friends, is look at this, read this, digest this, now go do what you need to do with this information with your friends and, and with your family. And that's why I get up in the middle of the night and I, as tired as I am sometimes, I do this every single day because I I love what I do with every cell in my body. And I. this is the most incredible ride I've been on. I don't know when it's gonna end. And I'm so grateful for this time that I have, that I look back and I can't, I cannot believe I've been doing this for 20 years.
0: Is it hard for you to maintain a posture of objectivity all the time? I remember seeing an episode of your your morning show when you had a US policy analyst or a military person or someone on last year talking about Iran during those massive protests in November. And I think he even referenced at one point, well, you have family back there. And I wondered how hard it would be for you to not be speaking out in that kind of circumstance to be able to, to have to sit there and be the anchor.
1: Yeah, it, it's challenging, Jian, because uh, my job is as much as possible to stay very balanced and neutral. You won't see me a lot. I get poked around a lot sometimes about why don't you talk about this so much? And uh, there are some broadcast networks and cable networks that they get paid to share what their opinions are. Um, but that's not what I do on the morning show every day. I'm su- supposed to be as much as possible neutral and balanced, per- Present someone's side. Let their opinions talk. Obviously, all of us are going to have a little bit of of bias. I mean, right now, when a story comes down, you know, when the plane crashed in Iran um, not too long ago, I was obviously emotionally invested in it more than my co-anchor would have been. Yes. Um, so you can hear the passion in my voice when we go to an editorial meeting. And I want, it, I want the story on the air because I feel like it matters. All of our opinions matter. Um, so it, it's a fine line that I have to walk often. Um, it will never stop. The whole journalistic journal- journey that you go on and you know this uh, as well is a choice that you have to make. So sometimes it'll come out and sometimes you can feel like, oh, I really want to say that, but you know what? I'm going to save that for another time. Or when we go to commercial break, I'm gonna lean over and I'm gonna say something to that person at that time afterwards.
0: This has been such a pleasure. Let's end off where we started with your, uh, <laughs> with your dancing and your ADs. <laughs> if you would need to put it in a nutshell, what do you really want people to know about Iranians and Iranian culture?
1: I have never lived in Iran but what i do know about it is that it is a magical magical beautiful culture it is so rich in tradition the iranian people are amazing they are kind they are beautiful i speak with so many of them through social media now and it i love it i absolutely i just go through the moon when someone from iran sends a message to me and says shali i'm on this side of the world and we're, we're dancing with you i hope one day i can stand in the fields and i've shared this before in the fields of shalizar where my name comes from and really be able to experience iran like so many uh, have but until that day comes the beauty that i know of iran the iranian people the food the dance the culture all of it i will continue sharing with all of my friends uh here in in the united states it's an incredible culture and i'm so proud to say that my parents are from iran and that i am also an iranian american
0: beautifully said thank you for this
1: thank you for this dion
0: take care of yourself hope to see you in in person soon and i hope you guys stay safe in california during this um wacky time
1: likewise gian thank you for the time hodafis hodafis
0: shalia zomorodi is an anchor (laughs) with fox 5 morning in san diego the host of the shalzi podcast she joined us from Southern california This is a special themed episode of Rook as we are doing all this month. This one, the broadcasters. I'm Gian Gimeshi. You can find all things related to Rook at our website, rookmedia.com, where you can see previous episodes, Rook moments, Rook funnies, our guests, our um, video clips, all of that at rookmedia.com. Let's get to our next guest. When it comes to Iranian journalists and particularly those who are now in the diaspora, it would be hard to make the case that there is anyone more iconic than our next guest. She was born in Shiraz in 1946 into a Jewish family, raised in Tehran. She spent her first 32 years in Iran where she studied French literature, that is before getting her PhD in journalism at the American World University in the US. Along the way she has spent 50 55 years creating content, reporting, doing interviews, and bringing information into the lives of Iranians. Homas Arshar is an Iranian-American author, activist, feminist, and journalist. She was a columnist for Zaniruz magazine and the Kahan Daily newspaper between 1964 and 1978. During that period, she also worked as a television producer, a director, and a talk show host for National Iranian Radio and Television. After moving to the U.S. in 1915, 1978, Homo Shar continued as a freelance journalist, radio and television producer, and as an on-air host. She is a multiple award winner, who's also the author of four books and the editor of 11 other volumes, including five volumes of the Iranian Women's Studies Foundation Journal and four volumes of the history of contemporary Iranian Jews. In 2005, Homo Shar founded the Center for Iranian Creative Arts, a Los Angeles-based non-profit. Organization and the first of its kind, and she has been a trusted advisor to Human Rights Watch for 25 years. She has most recently been the host of her popular radio program, Sobhane ba Homas Arshar, Breakfast with Homas Arshar, and Homas Arshar joins us from Los Angeles, California. Hello.
2: Hello, Jean. How are you?
0: I, I am well. I am so happy and honored to be speaking with you. Thank you for doing this.
2: Thank you for inviting me to your popular talk show or rock, as you call it.
0: Well, let me start. To, well, thank you. I Let me start here. Let me start with today. You You clearly have a thirst for journalism and human stories and news that remains unabated. And if I start with your most recent work and your weekly radio program, I wonder what is the allure for you at this point? Is it the human interaction? Is it the audience? Or is it being at the epicenter of important conversations about Iranians and the world?
2: First of all, is it a virus? Journalism is a virus. When you get it, you don't, you never get rid of it. Hmm. So for 55 years, I have been doing that um, I have been having this career that I love, and every single day that passes, I love it more. To answer your question, all the above, I have interactions with people. I have, um, it gives me um, ample time and also energy to uh, read, to listen, to observe, and to uh, be a um, Mediator between what is happening and also between the people who listen or read or watch me on TV. Uh, so um, I take it very seriously. I love it very much. And I think that I have been born to be a journalist because. Uh, even in my uh, personal life when I start asking questions my husband says can you can you put your journalism (laughs) career aside Uh, I have an inquiring mind so uh, I think the match was good and uh, homo sasha the person and homo Sasha the journalist we are living together very peacefully and interacting between us so uh, that's why I have continued for 55 years and I think if uh, nothing happened to me or I don't lose my mind, I have, I'm in a good state of mind. I will continue until, until I die. But uh, normally, well, you make it a little bit less, a little bit less, until um, the body doesn't let you do it or the mind doesn't let you do it.
0: You really, You really love it. More than you ever have. That's not just Persian tarof. That's you mean it. You, I mean you,
2: it. You, I mean it, and I. I think that by staying in this career for fifty-five years, I made my point because, you know, during uh, this all these five and a half decades, I have been writing and I have been talking and I have been interacting with people, and not always everybody liked what I did. Everybody um, was. I um, agreed with what I did. So even the challenge of uh, getting negative feedbacks or sometimes um, people just not liking me and putting uh, leaving voicemails that are not nice, even that didn't let me uh, stop doing right. what
0: I'm doing. Right. How does the virus uh, <laughs> the virus manifest itself in the moment? <laughs> I'm curious if you still get that Energy jolt, those butterflies when you do an interview, uh, the nervousness that, say, a young journalist would have if they're interviewing a Shah or an important person or a CEO. Where is that in? Is that still in you, or have you been there, done that enough that you don't need those butterflies anymore?
2: No, I, I do have it. When I'm doing my radio show, is not that much because people cannot see me. But to be honest with you, Jean, when I'm on the stage. And I talk to people and audience that are sitting in front of me. It's like the first day that I'm doing this. You know I, I hear the my heartbeat on my uh, throat. and you know I, I, I'm sure that you have experienced that one also. If you call it butterfly, I say it's my heart beating mm-hmm. so fast. So even now, and even in this age, when I go on the stage, I still have this sentiment and this uh, reaction of that my body shows, and I, uh, I am aware of of it every single time. So it it doesn't go away, and the virus they don't have they don't they have not find it. They have not found the uh, vaccine yet, so, right, so it's right. going to be with me all the
0: time. In case you're just tuning in, uh, Homo Sarsha does not have the virus that is a popular pandemic right now. She, <laughs> she has the media, the journalism virus. Um, let me ask you about methodology, because I, I've had the occasion to interview some icons of journalism, and I find there is a stark contrast between them, between someone like Larry King, say, who, who told me he takes pride in not being too prepared for his questions, so he can be, as he sees it, more natural when he asks them. And Barbara Walters, who told me she fastidiously did her homework for any and all interviews she's ever done. And then someone like Dan Rather, who says to me, you have to go with the flow. So what about you? What about Homo Sachar? Do you believe in extensive preparation, or do you rely on your investigative and intuitive skills in any situation somehow?
2: No, not expensive one, but uh, I prepare myself. I uh, do whatever is needed to know my my uh, guest. and uh, sometimes my guests ask me, "Send me your question," and I try to tell them that the first reaction to a question. Would be the best one. If you prepare for yourself to answer a question, it's not going to have that oomph that we are looking for in in journalism. So I don't. uh, I think about question. I don't put question on paper, and I go with the flow. I am 100% with that rather because you know the first question, what you're going to ask, and then um, according to the answer that you get, you may have another question. So I, I can say that I am 50-50. I prepare myself, and the only thing that I do it very deeply is to know my guest.
0: You know, just reading that introduction about you and, and all that you've accomplished, um, and that, and that's without getting into the challenges you've had to face as a as a Jewish woman in Iran, uh, especially, and then as a new immigrant for some time in, in America. Uh, there is a notion with someone like you that this was destiny, was it did you always want to be in media someone who tells stories
2: no actually not i was in love with architecture and i uh, wanted to become an architect but um as you may know uh, in iran uh, going to the university needs uh, an exam that you pass like sat that they pass here and uh, we call it concours and uh, in that uh, exam you decide to go to you de, you have the right to choose three uh schools or department to go in, and I have decided to go I have written on um, my uh, application that I want to be an architect, and my first choice was architecture and my second choice was French literature because I was speaking French, and I know I knew that no not too many people uh, would speak english uh, speak French at that time so that was like a, a backup for uh, going into the university, but unfortunately, I was not uh, I was not uh, successful to go to architecture uh, department. So they decided to send me to the French literature. And then, when I was there, I um, saw and I became friend with the journalist uh, that uh, was also in the school, and he told me that there is. A magazine coming up called Vanerose, and uh, they need a French translator mm. and When I went there and I started doing uh, translation of articles from French newspapers and magazines, I found out that this is what I meant to be so uh, from there, from being a translator, I became a reporter and then I became a columnist and uh, there was this uh, this history, was, uh, and I I stayed in Zanaruz in magazine for almost ten years, and then I uh, went one step up, and I um, went to Kehan, the uh, daily newspaper, and from there to uh, television, and I had my own program two times a, a week. And until uh, revolution happened. Okay, so
0: there. you said a lot there. But since you're talking about your time in Iran, that's a, that's a good segue. Let me, let me, let's go back. Take me back to, first of all, uh, to the beginning. Tell me <clears> about being a, a Jewish kid in Shiraz and then Tehran in the 1950s and 60s. How, how would you characterize life in those years for you?
2: I was born in Shiraz, but I was not raised in Shiraz. I, uh, my parents moved to Tehran when I was a year and a half, so I don't have that much memory from my very early childhood in Shiraz. But in Tehran, I, uh, I, we had a very modest life. My father was working, my mom was raising us, and she would not work, and uh, we were living with our family. and. Uh, one thing that happened that maybe made my uh, uh, childhood and made who I am today is my mom's decision to put me uh, in a French school. And that French school was run by French nuns. So uh, in that school, which was primary uh, Christian, there was no uh, difference between us that we had. Muslims, we had Jewish, we yeah. had Christians, and we had Assyrians, and living with different religions, different people around me, and uh, including the director, including the teachers, and also my classmates and everything, brought up in me uh, to being a like. A citizen of the world, not to think about myself as a Jewish girl. And uh, we were living in peace. We were loving each other. Nobody would ask, what's your uh, religion at that time? And uh, at 18 years old, when I just started working and uh, went to the university at the same time, I wouldn't feel any different.
0: This is quite extraordinary because you were, whether it was Zana Ruz or Kay Hahn, you were a Jewish woman in Iran working as a journalist throughout the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies. I can't imagine there were a lot of other Jewish women doing this job. Were there?
2: No. So My, you must uh, have had
0: some awareness that you were, you were, different or you were quite exceptional.
2: I, uh, honestly, I have, uh, encountered, uh, some of my, uh, colleagues. colleagues, uh, uh, after the revolution outside Iran, and they would say, Homa, we didn't know you were Jewish. Now we find out that you are Jewish. The way that we live on that period in Iran, we wouldn't, we wouldn't notice that we are very different from others. Mm-hmm. We knew that we were minorities, and, and because of that, you know, I, uh, a lot of people like me, a lot of minorities, when the first movement and demonstration started and they saw that he's in something Islamic is coming and a religious man is just becoming the number one uh, uh, leader of the opposition group and demonstrators and stuff right. like this, we wouldn't believe it. Nobody and and you know what? Many of my colleagues would tell me, "Don't worry, Homer. It's not going to happen. This is not going to happen. This is just a symbol. We're just following this guy, but we're going to do it. There would be a democracy. There would be this. There would be that." And I said, "He's a religious man. He's going to come, and he will. He would change." the law in the uh, country, and they said, no, are you kidding? It's not going to happen. But it happened.
0: Before we get to that moment, that fateful, the events of 1978 and and the events with you that are quite um, harrowing, Just sticking with what it's like to be a media person in Iran in this period, we know that there was, or there has been, no shortage of censorship of the media and culture under the current Islamic regime in Iran, but we also hear a lot about the crackdown on dissent and opposition uh, during the Pahlavi years, even in the 1970s as well. Did you feel free to be objective and tell the stories you wanted to tell when you worked as as a producer, as a director, as a host on Iranian national radio and television? Or were you aware of lines even then you could not cross?
2: Yes, we were aware of lines that we couldn't cross. And we wouldn't cross. So there was a, a generation of new uh, newscasts or generation of journalists at that time in Iran that we... Uh, learned how to self-censor ourselves, uh, and uh, so we we knew that sometimes some things were very sensitive. You should not touch it. You should not talk about the royal family. You should not go in. I mean, in a bad sense, criticize them or something right. like that. But you, you you could criticize the prime minister, you could criticize the uh, mayor of the city. But uh, the, the, the red line was the royal family. So uh, I think we didn't know any better about democracy or or being free to write, freedom of writing or freedom of speech or freedom of uh, beliefs. So uh, in the context of the law that was in the country, we were navigating.
0: So you were a a prolific and consistent journalist with Zanaruz, as we've talked about with Kay Han in the 60s and 70s. Then things change in this mm-hmm. period leading to the revolution in 1978. Uh, the story of your final days, uh, and I've listened to you tell this story on uh, in your recording of it, uh, the, the final days at Kay Han, it, it is it is both heartbreaking and infuriating. Can you give us the short version of what happened at that fateful time in the fall of 1978 to you?
2: So at that time i was uh, a translator of news that was the um the week that uh, ayatollah khomeini left iraq and went to paris right and i after a few days i was sitting at the table waiting for the wire to come for me to translate i didn't get any and uh, uh, after one or two days i was suspicious what happened i would ask you don't you get any wire, and they said no. But then, at night, I would go home, and I will—I uh, was uh, subscribed to newspaper. he would go, it would come to my door, and I would look at the newspaper, and I said, there, there is articles or translations from uh, France press, and. Uh, Finally, after two, three days, I went to my editor and said, why you don't give me those news to translate? I'm doing nothing, sitting here doing nothing. At that time, when he responded to me, to, to my question, he replied to my question, was well, the time that I find out that something has changed in, in this country and something has changed uh, in the mind of people. And he said, are you crazy? Who will give the news of Ayatollah Khomeini to a Jewish girl? You know, he, he, it will become dirty, as we say in, in Persian, najis. Mm-hmm. So I was in kind of state of shock. And I just look at him and I, I, I couldn't, I was speechless. I didn't know how to respond. And then the story is, is long. So I, uh, this is the day that I decided to come and sit home and not yes. go back to work. And then... Uh, Following stuff, following uh, event that happens, and I talk to one of my colleagues and I talk to my neighbors and stuff like this. And every time sh- there's another shock, another shock. And my colleagues say, "You know what? for you. It's better to go to Israel, to your own country." I said, "What do you mean, my own country? My own country is Iran." And you know what? That's uh, every time that I talk about this event, it's, my heart just breaks again and yes. again and. Uh, uh, that, that was it, and we left the country. We left the country because my husband also was, um, they fired him from his job, and they fired me from um, national uh, Iranian television. Everything happened in two weeks. So we said, uh, maybe it's, it's not permanent what's happening. Let's go out and let's leave for now. And we left two months prior to the revolution. I never went back.
0: Oh my! I mean, I guess this is stating the obvious, but there's this very sad irony around the fact that the that the very revolutionaries in your story who who ostensibly see themselves as I guess progressive and comrades and Rochefort mm-hmm. in some way are the ones who are suddenly calling you by demeaning sexist names and alluding to your Jewish race. Uh, how how hard was that for you?
2: Bravo, Jean, to catch this
0: point this is this is this
2: is the time that I hurt me more because you wouldn't expect from them and all of a sudden you see that change that sudden change in the mentality of these people and they had them some excuse they said this is a bahana scene. this is an excuse for us don't don't get don't get us wrong, a, a progressive person will never go back to religion, it will never accept a religious man as a leader. We need to, uh, the, for the revolution to happen, then people who take the crown out of Shaw's ha- head, they will very very easily take the amame out of uh, 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 clarity. clergy. Right, right.
0: So you arrive in California in 1978, what, what was it like to come to the, the United States as someone who'd been this journalist on the front lines in Iran? Now you're in a new country with a language that you don't, uh, I don't know, you, you probably didn't speak that well. I know you spoke French. No, oh. I,
2: didn't, yeah, I didn't speak uh,
0: English. You didn't speak English. No. So what, <laughs> what, what was that for, like for you and your husband when you first arrived?
2: It was a culture shock. It was fear of unknown. Uh, it was dark. I uh, I literally cried for six months. Whoever asked me, "Homa, how are you?" I start, I would start crying because I wouldn't believe it. Because they, we came here not permanently. We came temporary, and we would our our uh, desire was to go back. So we just locked the, uh, our apartment and you just left. So the only thing that I could have think about it and would give me some kind of uh, relief at that moment is to go back to university again. So I decided to go back to university, and my husband said, You don't speak English. I said, Okay, so what? I'm going to learn English while I'm uh, on the, in the class. And it was hard. It was hard. And then uh, I started to write, because there was a Iranian Jewish Federation that they... Uh, Started to an organization for Iranian Jews here in Los Angeles, and they wanted to have like a, a newsletter. So they asked me to do it. They knew me, so they asked me to do it. So that was something, a little, a little, uh, for, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for that time. So I started that newsletter and it became a magazine because I had something to do with my like, shofar. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, I, um, got a call from Iraj Gorgin who also fled the country and came to Los Angeles and he said we should start a radio here and are you coming to work with, and with me and I said, of course, but I don't know how to work in radio. He said, I'm going to teach you. Hmm. So all this happened in in a period of maybe six, seven years. And then uh, I was need to be satisfied that I'm doing what I love more, so writing, talking, giving slowly, slowly, the television cable TV, Iranian cable cable TV started. and then uh, this the life went on.:
0: You alluded to some of the uh the media that uh, had begun in the period when you get here and, and that you're recruited to be part of. I want to ask you the question directly. There are a fair number of Persian radio and TV programs in the diaspora now, of course, especially yeah. coming out of the United States, but really around the world. What was the media landscape like for Iranians outside of Iran in the early 1980s?
2: It was... Uh kind of media i would have i won't call them media 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 because there was like one room in a gentleman that was working on iranian national tv but was not also it was not host or what not producer he was like a engineer for example in uh back in iran on the nir tv and they started to broadcast uh, first of all, to broadcast through the cable TV and the rental time. And it uh, started with one, the first one that I went with them and talked to John jam. And then other one-hour TV, rental TV started. The pro- production was very poor. The uh, professionalism didn't exist. But uh, people would watch because this was the only line of liaison between uh, Iranian communities. So we started to have ads, advertising, and doctors and lawyers and, uh, I don't know, different kind of uh, um, jobs. They would give us advertising, and that would just generate some money for the producer of the program to do it, and little by little, when the uh, satellite started, all of a sudden, everything changed from a small one-hour TV, rental TV on a cable, on an American cable uh, uh, channel, to a 24-hour program on TVs, and uh, but that time, many of these people that started talking and being a host on the TV, they became a little bit familiar with the TV journalism and TV hosting and stuff like this. So they started to, and uh, they also started to recruit old journalists and old TV personalities back from Iran in their cables or in their uh, satellite TV, still to this day. Except a couple of TVs that are sponsored by governments back in London or in uh, Washington, D.C. The other that are are produced by just one person or one family that they're doing is not the correct or the ideal uh, television that you are expecting or channel that you're expecting. But they're trying, and they're trying hard. Some of them have been has survived for 40 years and they're still doing it but uh, now uh, the competition is so vast and they, they are just producing programs and there are channels i don't know more than 40 50 channels iranian channels most of them out of here in los angeles and some of them mostly in london and also in canada you know, we have a lot in canada too so
0: um why don't, why don't you work there I mean, I'm curious. I mean, you. But you haven't stopped since the early '80s. By the way, you are yeah. tireless in continuing to do your work, uh, whether it's publishing, uh, writing, or doing your weekly radio show or doing appearances. Um, but you have said that you you, you don't make much money do what you, doing what you do on in terms of the the, uh, the radio show, etc. Uh, why why doesn't Homer Sasha go and work with one of these big Iranian networks now, the Manoto or Iran mm-hmm. international or BBC or Persian, or all of these guys?
2: Honestly, I uh, when I started uh, radio with uh, Iraj Gordin and Radio Meet, and it was a very, very successful radio. I fall in love with radio as a media. Radio is the one that is my love for now, and I I, I love it when I go to studio and I have the mic in front of me and I, I close my eyes and start talking to people. Uh, I feel much better than just doing makeup and. Mm, getting dressed and everything and uh, being there make sure that you don't you don't move that that way, or if you don't uh, close your eyes. You don't blink.
0: <laughs> I so agree with you. I am, uh, uh, in fact, even with Rook. I mean, we, uh, you know, we have a studio, and when when, when post COVID people come into the studio, maybe we will start using cameras, etc. But a lot of people say, "Oh, why don't you guys do the thing with on Zoom that everybody's doing now?" And you, you know, so there's visuals, and and honestly, I am so in love with audio still, and I really believe. I really believe that we can have, even though you and I are not even in the same room right now, Mm -hmm. we can have a more profound conversation without the visuals and that, that, that it's a different experience um for the consumer the person who's listening the person who's experiencing the interview it's different than it would be if there were visuals where you're distracted by oh look at her hair or what's in the background or did he just move his hand or uh i'm not sure i like the way this guy is dressed or whatever it is uh yes. and and theater of the mind you know this is radio i've always believed is that theater of the mind you you're developing the images yourself so i'm with you on that and yes. i understand it
2: and also you're you're uh, talking to it more active audience when it's radio as opposed to television that are yes. more passive ones. Yes. So they, they listen to you when you, they're driving car, they listen to you when they're walking. So I think that radio is the media of the
0: future. I'm so grateful for the time you've given us today. Thank you for doing this.
2: Thank you for inviting me and thank you for having me on your show. Yeah.
0: I look forward to seeing you in person again before too long. Merci. Homo <laughs> Saarshar, an award winning journalist, author, and activist. Her most recent weekly radio program has been called Breakfast with Homo Saarshar. She joined us from Los Angeles, California. This is a special themed episode of Rook, the Broadcasters. Well, we've heard from Shali Zomaradi and Homo Shar. Our third guest today is a world renowned television anchor, radio presenter, output editor, and senior producer who has worked with a variety of news, current affairs, features, and interactive programs for BBC. She is the Business Development Manager for Global Partnerships at the BBC World Service and one of the BBC's select group of multilingual presenters. Puneko Dusi started her career in journalism in 1990, in her birthplace, Iran, working for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. She has freelanced for a great number of international media outlets, including the Washington Post, the Toronto Star, the Daily Telegraph, the Financial Times, NPR, and PBS. Over. For more than two decades with the BBC, she has edited, produced, and presented programs on BBC World News, BBC Persian Television, and BBC World Service Radio. She was, of course, the host of the award-winning interactive program Nobata Shoma" Your Turn, on BBC Persian Television for four years. Pune is also a BBC senior media trainer, helping educate the next generation of journalists and presenters on editorial and legal guidelines interviewing skills, social media verification, digital and mobile journalism, and editorial leadership. Pune speaks English, Persian, and French fluently and understands Arabic, Italian, Portuguese, and German. She is one of those rare folks who's been at the top of the game as an anchor in both Farsi with BBC Persian and English with BBC World. And Pune Kodusi joins me from London, England. Hello.
3: I'm humbled. I'm humbled. That was the longest introduction anyone has ever given me. <laughs> You're exhausted. And one of the sweetest. <laughs> You're exhausted.
0: Uh, well, you deserve yeah, it. Thank
3: you. That's like my career in a whole paragraph.
0: By the way, I mean, I can't help that you speak a hundred languages. I had to go through the whole list. If you just limit it to English and Persian, it would have been a lot easier.
3: No, no, no. I speak a little bit of everything and a, a lot or enough of nothing.
0: <laughs> well, uh, certainly not nothing. There's a. You really are international, though. You're an international human, and I'll get into that. Maybe that'll form the subtext of this interview because you're who you are. You're. I'm career, a global
3: nomad for sure.
0: <laughs> you well, you're you're global. That's for you know. Let me start here there's a sense with some people that they are in a field that they're destined to be in and that's the way I feel when I watch you or listen to you broadcast you're not just world-class in various languages but you are comfortable in your own skin and and I, I always tell young journalists that the key the magic of of broadcasting is to make the audience feel comfortable with you so that they will believe you and feel comfortable themselves and want to watch or listen. Do you believe that's true?
3: That's a very sweet thing to say. I think the superpower of anyone who wants to get into this business is to be able to comfortably open up, genuinely open up, show interest in people genuinely again, and allow people to open up back to them. And anyone who can do that would be great at this business. You don't have to study journalism or international relations or politics for 20 years, but it helps. <laughs> but yes, there is that human contact um, aspect of things. And
0: how do you genuinely open up? You.
3: I have no shame, one. <laughs> I have nothing to hide, two. <laughs> um, I don't know, I'm generally curious. I was a Fuzul child, a nosy child as a kid. I was always told, don't do this, don't go there, it's too early for you, too dangerous for you. And naturally, whenever they told me, don't put your finger in that electricity plug, that was exactly what I was heading for.
1: (laughs) Um,
3: And I think that curiosity or genuine um, intrigue in what's going on in in the world with the people just got me into this. I never thought i would grow up and be a journalist at all i probably didn't know what a journalist was when i was 10 or 15 even um i sort of dived into it in a roulette kind of a way (laughs) or in a runaway train kind of a way that someone just switches the line before you really know it and you're in another career course or country course or life course and I love
0: that. Hang on, let me get to the <laughs> let me get to the runaway train <laughs> and the roulette because that I, I I definitely want to talk about that. But two steps back, when you were just talking about, see, I don't think it's only about opening yourself up because especially in this moment, in the twenty first century, where social media and Instagram stars and it is so much about just opening up oneself. I, I think you have to add to that and you did then it the curiosity element and the willingness to listen would you agree with that
3: yes absolutely I think people on social media or a lot of people right now confuse putting yourself out there for self-promotion with putting yourself out there because of interest in life and its people and and the world and I think having genuine interest in other people is what makes you really good in this business. Not having an interest in promoting yourself, showing how clever you are, how great your research is, how prepared you are for the interview. A lot of interviewees end up asking questions that are longer than the answers (laughs) of the interviewee. (laughs) Um, I always, when I, when I used to train newcomer journalists, um, in my training courses at the BBC, I always say one of the first things I do in the first session is say, remember, this is not a tennis match. You're not an equal player in an equal game on the same court. Okay. This is like a squash match. You're the wall back there. They're supposed to bounce their ideas and their discussions and their opinions off or on you. Yeah. You're supposed to just bounce it back and reflect on these, but you're not supposed to play take a racket and join the game as if you're part of the game yourself and i think it's sort of pulling yourself out of the story allowing the story to develop without you being a star in it allowing the other person or the actual story to be the star in it
0: you know it's gratifying to hear you say that and not to go too far into this rabbit hole before because i I do want to make it about your story but but it makes me sad that so much of so-called journalism or interviewing uh, or broadcasting, especially when it comes to television, uh these days in television news has been equated with good journalism has been equated with ambushing the guest with some ammunition that you're going to expose them ideologically with or something and i, th- I don't know making that's... them
3: look like an idiot I, well, that, that, and th- you win <laughs> i think it's
0: partly a byproduct of the trump era and just the nature of the world in general where everything's become so manichaean you're either a good guy or a bad guy and so if you bring somebody on from the other side you have to attack them and but but that's not what i i've ever seen in interviewing to be that the idea that you bring somebody on and yell at them and prove that they're a bad person or that you know <laughs> that they've got the wrong it's not prescription
3: confrontation for the sake of confrontation i know many channels thrive on that and their audiences love it they're just there for the punch-up it's like watching wwf more than watching the news or watching right, a discussion right, program right but to me it's not really about that
0: and yet i'm sure you've had the experience i mean not that you don't of course you should ask the responsible questions and 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 hold people to account to a certain extent but i'm sure you've had the had had this happen to you either at bbc world or certainly bbc persian where you would bring somebody on And the audience, some audience who disagrees with that person will be angry at you for simply not yelling at them for half an hour. And you, you sort of go, well, my job is to extract who this person is and what they believe and for you to decide what you think, not for me to yell at them. Absolutely.
3: My job is to expose this person and what they believe in and expose their ideas and expose what's going on in the world. It's your job to make up your mind about whether you like it, whether you approve of it, whether you agree with it or not. It's not my job to tell you, hello, this is good. This is bad. Do this. Don't do that.
0: It's so interesting to me. A few months ago, that you said that um, this wasn't the plan for you to get into to broadcasting or to get into media or to get into journalism, uh, because it feels like it was destiny. I mean, with you, the story is actually is actualized by your teens when you're working for the the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal as a fixer and a reporter in Iran. You know, most journalists would work a lifetime and not get a gig at the New York Times. H- how did this happen to? a young woman, a girl, in Iran.
3: It's funny you should say that, because recently, I don't know, somewhere I posted a story about it was the anniversary of the earthquake, uh, Rudbar-Manjil earthquake in Iran in 1990, when I suddenly got drawn into this business. And I posted something saying I was only 18, I arrived at the earthquake zone, uh, working for the New York Times, and immediately a bunch of people, I assume trolls only, said, oh, you must have had connections or it was nepotism. What 18 year old becomes a journalist with the New York Times? Who, how much did you pay? Or who did you sleep with? Or this is impossible, your story is unbelievable. It is in a way a little bit unbelievable, but I was in the first year of university in Iran. I spoke good enough English already because I, um, I did since I was a child, but I had a French teacher an adorable lady, a French lady in Iran who taught French at her home. She called me and she said a bunch of foreign journalists have arrived in Iran. It was the first time they allowed a bunch of foreign journalists to come in because they wanted to get foreign aid into the country since the revolution. So five or six foreign journalists were allowed to arrive to go to the earthquake zone. She put me in touch with people from The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal. I borrowed my mother's high heels and her silk scarf and her handbag to look a little bit more grown up because I was in torn jeans and Doc Martens at that age. (laughs) Um, I arrived in some hotel lobby, talked to these people. They said, "Uh, we need to head to the earthquake zone in three hours. We've just arrived. And this is a day after the most devastating earthquake in Iran. And my first answer was, um, excuse me, I have to go home and ask permission from my parents to go with you. This is before mobile phones and everything. Um, So yes, I was a kid. I was totally unprepared for this, besides the fact that I spoke fluent English, which was the only asset that was helpful at that time. Uh, I ended up going home, packing up my toothbrush and backpack and getting onto a Red Crescent helicopter and arriving onto an earthquake zone that was, you know, most horrible than any horrible Hollywood movie you've ever seen. And standing there just frozen and shocked and horrified at what's going on around me. And I had no idea what to do. And I was supposed to run around and translate and interpret what was going on. So yes, I got thrown into the deep end of a pool within five hours notice, maybe. Wow. And it changed my life. And I'm grateful because Exactly at the same time as I thought this is the most horrendous thing that could have ever happened to me. It was also one of the most thrilling experiences and there and then I thought, this is it.
0: By the time you're in university in Iran and you're set to come west, uh, I'm always curious whether the person, a person like you especially, whose career outside of Iran, related to Iran, has been so big and so public for the last 20 years when you left Iran and I know you ended up coming even to Canada for a stint did you have a sense that that was going to be forever I mean did you were you saying goodbye to Iran I'm now headed to for the diaspora or did it feel like maybe I'll go and, and do some education and then return somehow
3: to be honest I don't want to say I left and I thought I'm never going to look behind my back because that's not the case. But there was a point that I had worked as a journalist in Iran with New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Toronto Star, Boston Globe, um, I don't know, Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, and numerous newspapers. So I had already been working for six, seven years as a stringer, as a fixer in Iran. I had been arrested and harassed and bothered so much, and it was so difficult doing what I really wanted to be doing, and also for my parents, who had the deeds to the house on top of the TV stand, ready to come and bail me out whenever I get arrested, because it was that much of a regular wow. event. Wow. At some point, it came to this point of like, not just me, but everyone telling me, my mom said, you know, I'd love for you to stay in Iran and get married and live upstairs and have kids and stay here. but." it's time for you to leave this this is not working for you if you want to continue in this career if, if this is what you want to be doing this is not sustainable for you and it really wasn't because there was a point that i mean my file in airshad and intelligence was already this big when i was in my early 20s <laughs> which I take that as a compliment, but I don't know if they do.
0: So this is interesting to me. You end up coming to, I mean, it's funny because you're clearly hardworking and you're clearly good at what you do from a a young age. I mean, even at that, well, look, I mean, even at that stage, the New York times doesn't retain keep hiring an 18 year old unless they're doing a good job. So it's clear that you, you know, you were doing it right. But It's also, you have this interesting, I mean, maybe this is what you mean by the roulette wheel, but this interesting trajectory where things just kind of happen with you. You come to Canada, you're doing university here in Toronto, and if I have the story straight, a friend of yours applies on your behalf, unbeknownst to you, for a job for you (laughs) at BBC Persian, and you get the job and go to London. Is that right?
3: Very true, yes. So yes, I finished my stint as a stringer fixer in Iran, decided to go to Toronto to properly study (laughs) journalism as a post-grad. When I arrived in Canada, I decided this is a great place to live. Actually, I went there for two weeks initially um, to visit a friend. And I decided to stay. I enrolled in university. I got a job. I got a life. I got a boyfriend, a flat, friends, everything. After about three years, I was on a work trip in Syria, actually. I was in Damascus. And when I came back, an old friend of mine who's an editor and a book publisher in Iran called me and said, I looked for you. I tried calling you. This is early days of email, by the way. You were really lucky if you had a laptop or a university email account. (laughs) Hotmail was the only thing or AOL.com.
0: Mid-90s about?
3: Yes, ninety.
0: 98.
3: Yep. Yep. Um, So he called me from Iran and said, I saw this ad in the Economist magazine. I thought it's right up your alley. They're looking for a producer in BBC's Persian service in London. Uh, I couldn't find you. But because we'd worked together, I had one of your old resumes from a few years ago. So I'm sorry, I took the liberty and I sent it over to them. Now, if you want, you can follow it up. They may not even get in touch with you, but if they do, it's up to you. I'll leave it to you. And I thought, wow, my life was only beginning to become completely organized and relaxed and and settled in Canada. I had decided this is what I'm going to do. This is my life. This is my job. Just about to finish university. And someone calls me and says, would you like to come to Turkey for a job interview with the BBC? And the BBC, you know, huge name. I'm like, mm, yeah, yeah.
0: When you started BBC Persian on radio, um, what what surprised you the most uh, with this new official job in Farsi as a broadcaster? Do you remember what what it was that was that was new for you?
3: Becoming uh, part of the story, like putting your name and your face out there, was something that I wasn't prepared for. And I started in radio, so. I had about a day or two to decide to go on air and present something. And suddenly I was like, whoa, wait a second. This is going to have repercussions. Um I'm, I'm going on air. This, is, this means I'm exposing, I don't know, a part of me that I wasn't really. I hadn't thought of that until then. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it, because the rest of the work is really the same kind of work. I was covering Iran. In Iran, I was covering Iran. In London, I was covering Iran most of the time, but I did a lot of international news as well.
0: You you go from radio to TV quite famously, and by the time you have your popular show, Nobata Shoma on BBC Persian, you've become very well-known in Iran. By the way, I've been told that of all the Iranians in the diaspora that are celebrities back in Iran, it's often the anchors and broadcasters on the big networks because that's sort of the big show in terms of <laughs> what people can get with satellite, etc., how was that for you becoming this uh, because now that's different from just being a journalist and going into the media now you're you've become very well known back in your home country uh on bbc television
3: yes it had a variety of kinds of repercussions for me personally professionally and for my family and people close to me uh part of it is the typical thing of you know you're a bit more well known luckily Walking on the streets of London, few people would recognize me because of watching Persian TV. Luckily, I didn't walk on the streets of Tehran at that time. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know how many people would recognize me or whether it would be more pleasant or less. (laughs) But um, it became more and more difficult to work as a journalist because the focus of the apparatus in Iran on you becomes much stronger. They start feeling the threat of this broadcasting corporation getting into people's hearts and minds a lot more and it sort of scares them and they start bothering you a lot more for it. And not just harassing me or, you know, putting up stories or fake news or trolling or death threats or jokey threats or whatever, but... A lot of people who weren't prepared or didn't sign up for this the way I did, including my parents, my brother, my closer relatives and friends, got sort of entangled in that in a way that I would have really not wanted for them to. And they hadn't really decided it.
0: I wasn't going to go here just yet, but let me go here since we're talking about it. I mean, just to put a fine point on it, it's no secret that there are pressures working for BBC Persian I mean it's it's really almost quite unique uh, in the media landscape even in the polarized media landscape of, of today's world because with BBC Persian and Iranians will understand what I'm saying this even if they hate that I'm interviewing you or they love you or whatever it is that you kind of with BBC Persian take it from all sides at least that's the that's the uh, my observation I mean regularly seems like no one in the broader Iranian debate is happy with BBC Persian you're either being attacked by the regime or you're being considered part of the regime and so yeah I
3: always say sorry to jump in but I always say just think for a moment if we are part of the regime or servicing the regime as many may think we are then why do you think we haven't been able to go back to the country or see our parents or our parents and relatives have been harassed and arrested in Iran? And, you know, why do you think there's been so much trouble for us if they love us this much? If we are collaborators, we should be able to go have a much more easy life than we have.
0: There's something else that's very interesting about being a a broadcaster uh, outside of Iran broadcasting back to Iran. and I, I I want to ask you this as a broadcaster. I mean, it's it's still so fascinating to me, the plight of an Iranian broadcaster outside of Iran because you are mostly broadcasting to an audience that you're not going to see in person or even have any access to, which oh, is hopefully
3: I am one day. well
0: okay, I'm not you know okay one day but I mean the, enough, the part of the idea is, uh, you know, I'm going to broadcast to the, the people across the street, so let me go visit with the people across the street so I can build a sense of community with them. I mean, when you have that barrier that you're excommunicated from the, and, 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 and pulled away from the people that you, who are actually the ones watching you, it's a, such an interesting paradox and, and such an interesting anyone obstacle anyone who gets course.
3: in touch with you or calls you or gives you an interview, you know that they're going to get into trouble. They know that they're probably going to get into trouble. And, you know, forget about officials, non-officials, when they pick up the phone and they decide to call the BBC and be a citizen journalist and talk to you, they know the risks they're taking, especially at heightened times of crisis when there's protests or when there's demonstrations happening in the country. And you really have to respect that because I'm sitting in my safe home in London. Well, I did have a couple of threats or a couple of stalkers following me i had like security at the bbc heightened around me for a while but that's really nothing compared to people who pick up the phone and call the bbc and when they hang up someone from the iranian apparatus calls them immediately and says i know you just called them don't you ever do that or come show up for a questioning tomorrow you have to respect that
0: you end up anchoring at bbc world then in english and I was thinking about that because I am I was thinking that audience is likely exponentially larger than the BBC Persian audience. I mean, probably in the millions more. But I'm assuming... About 450 million. Okay. But I'm assuming that it would have been... And by the way, you're great in English. I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's even silly to say it because you're you're. A I'm known as
3: the person with the weird, dodgy accent. You can't place where she's that, from. That's
0: right. But I'm assuming that it was less hassle to be broadcasting to ten times more people, right? Just because you don't have to deal with all the inner politics of uh, of and cultural issues and and issues with the regime and all of that by working in Farsi.
3: Absolutely, it was quite lovely arriving in the airports in the States or in Nigeria or in Nepal or in Hong Kong and being welcomed <laughs> by passport people, by police, by people who just come to pick you up because they recognize you as a BBC person and they respect you immediately because they think, oh, these are the good guys. <laughs> They're doing something right, rather than being feeling like you're targeted for what you're doing all the time.
0: How is it different? presenting in English to an English audience versus a Persian one in other words are you is it the same rules are you the same person do you do you do the same things really or or do you feel like you have to speak slightly in a different way or cheat your body in a different way or explain things slower or faster Uh, talk to me about that
3: interesting question I don't think I've ever quite evaluated that in my own head I don't have different personas for different programs, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but I do remember when I was on Persian programs, I felt, because I'm not a very conservative person, I'm maybe more westernized than, than half of the Iranian or Afghan or Tajik audience would maybe appreciate or like a TV face to be. I always felt that I have to be more well-behaved and more ladylike and maybe a little bit more demure in the way I dress, for example, when I'm on Persian TV, because the audience is not used to it as such. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was very adamant and very uh, sneakily keen to push those boundaries centimeter by centimeter and word by word and and not fall for that conservative mentality of you know your your older uncle would not approve of this or the older gentleman in Afghanistan who's more um religious than you are would not approve of the way you're dressing or the way you're speaking this is the bbc it is not iranian state tv so there has to be a standard of difference and This is a European Western mindset and institution. So I'm not going to look like Islamic TV does or Afghan TV or Persian state TV does. But at the same time, you have to respect sensitivities to some extent while constantly trying to push them and and open them up to the extent that you can. I felt I was a lot more comfortable wearing what I wanted or joking about things as I wanted. Uh, when I had 400 million more audience, it's, it's
0: ironic, isn't it? Yeah.
3: It's weird to say this. I don't think I've ever said this before, but you know there are a lot of Iranian restaurants in Toronto as well. If I ever go to an Iranian restaurant with my group of friends or my family in London, I always feel that I have to be a little bit more aware of my behavior than if I go to another restaurant where yeah. I don't feel I may be as much recognizable.
0: Where you're a drunken sot. So, yeah, let's yeah, yeah. cool. go. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, you yeah. you um you do still do lots of broadcasting, but you are now primarily. I working. do
3: occasionally broadcasting now. Sure, yes. yeah,
0: but you've got this gig on global partnerships, business representing BBC. That that is a different kind of front line from covering a war or anchoring on air during a crisis. Do you? Do you? I mean, it's the obvious question: Do you miss the adrenaline of being on the air?
3: Not yet, but a lot of people, even at work, they ask me, you were a presenter. What are you doing in business development team now? Um, I need change and I need new challenges and I need new adventures all the time. And in the past 20 years, I've maybe worked in 10, 15 different departments at the BBC, English, language services, training, um, social media, editorial, projects, different English programs, different Farsi programs. And there came a point about two, three years ago, when I thought I need I need a new field of interest and I need to learn something. Sort of maybe plateaued or maybe become a little bit, been there, done that with producing, presenting, editing, hosting shows, going to dangerous places. Sure. sure. <laughs> maybe I maybe I grew up a little bit or matured a little bit as well. But the adrenaline wasn't quite doing it for me. And I think I just wanted to find it. And also, to be honest, the media world is heading in that direction When you really, where you really want to find out how can it sustain itself in this world of social media. Everyone's calling us now legacy media, which seems a bit <laughs> offensive. I feel like a dinosaur when somebody says that to me. It's sort of... You have to keep this place, you have to sustain and survive as an institution. So what my team does is try to bring external funding into the BBC, make partnerships with other organizations to continue in the path of making the same programs that we are trying to make. If we had all the budget in the world, we would have loved to make anyway, as in they fit our editorial Framework anyway, right, right. so it's it's quite thrilling. It's not it's not boring or dull. I'm not sitting behind a desk doing um, office work all the time.
0: <laughs> How do you feel about social media?
3: I love it and loathe it. <laughs> no, I don't loathe it as much as everybody thinks it's toxic or poisonous. I think it could be used in much wiser, cleverer, more useful ways rather than just you know doing Kim Kardashian. <laughs> Video mimes. I think everything has its place, but this is such a gigantic endeavor and such a gigantic advent in the world. Uh, I, don't, I know you're a rock dude, <laughs> you're a, rock a dude. music buff mm-hmm. as much as I am. There was an interview. I think in the 80s with David
0: Bowie. 90s.
3: Early 90s. When he maybe, predicted When the he internet. was talking yeah. about internet coming and yeah. social media yeah. coming and how it's going to change the world. Yeah. And Jeremy Paxman, whom I worked with, I was on Newsnight for about a year, is just he was one of the best presenters on the BBC ever, one of the biggest faces. And he was saying, come on, it's a fad. It's, it's not going to take up, is it? He was just so dismissive. I'm embarrassed to remember it. And David Bowie was just saying, do you realize the power it's going to have, the changes it's going to create? And I think that kind of vision, if everybody had that, or at least a few more people Mm. had that, to understand the power and the weight and the positivity that it can bring in educating people, in saving people's lives, in entertaining and informing people, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for it. And the cat videos and Kim Kardashian videos can have their their own fair share. I'm all for
0: that. You have forever won my heart by referencing a Bowie uh, uh, comment. But I think what he said. <laughs> I think what he said. What the amazing part of what he said was he said, Do you, "You, we have no idea where this is going, but it's going to change the way people think." That uh, and and Absolutely. he was right. He was the only you know one of these people saying that. It, it's been an absolute pleasure. It is. I really appreciate Mine, the amount of I'm time. I'm humbled. I I thank you. Uh, Please tell me more about how you're humbled. I want to hear.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just warming up, man.
0: Uh, it's been a joy, and I, I thank you for uh, the work you've done and, for again, for taking the time to talk to us. And I suspect, I mean, if I were to guess, I, I, I think you're going to be uh, back on the air. Um, I, I don't think you can keep a good person down. and, and thats I
3: occasionally sneak away from my office and, and present a documentary oh, I know and do, you do. A,
0: do a program. <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. I we'll do. see more. Uh, I hope to see you before too long. Thank you for this. My
3: pleasure. Thank you. Lovely talking to you.
0: office. <laughs> Bye-bye. Puneco Dusi, world-renowned television anchor, radio presenter, output editor, senior producer, who's worked with a variety of news, current affairs, features, and interactive programs for the BBC. She's currently the business development manager for Global Partnerships at the BBC World Service. Puneco Dusi. join me from London, England. There you go. That is The Broadcasters, this special themed edition of Rook, and this is full time for Rook for today. Join us for our next edition of Rook, The Screen Gems with Shiva Nagar, Mondana Karimi, and Nekar Zadegon. Our website for all things Rook is rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together each week. Uh, thoughtful Nagin The Fabulous Kion Ponta the Artist Super Patty Saw so, Producer Susan Savvy Roham, Marai Mehrdad Sponsorship Sean Captain Reza And Groovy Shaya Thank you to all of you out there Supporting us and sharing our content Please subscribe If you've not done so already You can find me on Instagram And Facebook at Gian Gomeshi And of course As ever In the meantime Mizun Bashi